We're talking the seven churches of Revelation. Tonight is the second church that we're going to discuss together. This is the church in the city of Smyrna. Reading in Revelation 2, 8 to 11. This is the ESV. And to the angel in the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Praise Jesus for that. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those that say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We thank you for the word of God this evening. I'm sure that lots of you have probably heard the saying, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. If you haven't, it's one of those phrases that generally tends to come right before some kind of trouble. Uh, I remember thinking these words 22 years ago after mistakenly smashing out the back window of our family van with a a badly misplaced rock. And right before having to go inside to tell my dad what I had done, felt like a death march, walking up to the front door and going inside. For the record, it did get worse before it got better. Although my dad, in his defense, did handle the news better than expected. And I'd suspect that most of us, if not all of us, have experienced situations in our lives that could have warranted these words. And the fact is, this kind of thing is hard to hear. It's hard to accept because what we hear tends to be, hey, you know that thing you've been enduring? You know that struggle that you've been having? That pain or that stumbling block that just won't go away, well, that's going to continue to be a part of your life for another period of time, another season. And this evening, as we look at Revelation 2, 8 to 11, we see that the idea of it's going to get worse before it gets better was certainly part of the message to the Christians at the church in Smyrna. Part of the message, but not the whole message. Because the greater reality here is that this section of Scripture, if we really get down to it, is formed around the hope that we have if we're found in Christ. It's a message that says right now, it seems as though the darkness is predominant, but you can count on the fact that the sunrise is just over the horizon, and not just any old sunrise, an eternal sunrise, bound to chase away that darkness forever. This is the fullness of that which Jesus speaks in this portion of Scripture. It's a simple message, but it's a profound message in that it's an anchor for the soul. So, 
in our time tonight, we're going to make note of, firstly, the plight of the Christians in Smyrna, the background, the context. These are words by Jesus through John to a specific group with specific details sprinkled throughout, and it would be wise for us to not lose sight of that, because it's this context that I believe will give us the most accurate picture moving forward. And secondly, once we have the foundation in place, we'll then move on to the main message of the text, a message, as Paul mentioned last week, that's meant for all who are part of the community of Christ in these last days. These words were written to a church, small c, but we believe that these words mean just as much to the church, capital C. That's where we're headed. And friends, for those of you who have made a decision to follow Jesus, this message is for you. It's an honest reminder, but it's also meant to be an encouragement, reassurance, truth sprinkled with grace. That we can expect hardships as we commit our lives to Christ, but that ultimately faith is the victory. And for those of you who are here tonight who are perhaps new to Jesus, This message is also for you, and it's my hope and my prayer that our time together this evening will help to reveal the eventualities of following the world and of following Jesus. Because, friends, we can't do both. It's got to be one or the other. So let's get into it. Let's get into the background. Let's get into the context. Here we go. During the time that this letter was circulated, Smyrna, or what is now modern-day Izmir, Turkey, was a powerful, influential city. In fact, by many accounts, it rivaled Ephesus as the first city of Asia, first meaning the greatest. Interesting language there. It was called the crown of Asia. It was called the flower of Asia. It was important in trade. It was important in location. It was right on the water, a protected harbor, also a protected waterway that led to that harbor, It was also grand in scale. The city had been destroyed previously, but had been rebuilt, and so it was one of the only cities in the ancient world to be planned. It wasn't a sprawl. It was on a grid, and it was really, really efficient. And importantly for us this evening, Smyrna was an intensely fierce ally of the Roman Empire. Sold out on all things Rome, including their religious system, and more specifically, the idea of emperor worship. A system that carried with it great pressure to hail the leader of Rome as a god, with failure to do so often resulting in various forms of persecution. Okay, it's here that we pick up our scripture in verse 8 and we meet the Christians in Smyrna. I'm going to read this again for you. Verses 8 and 9. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those that say they are Jews, but are rather a synagogue of Satan. Firstly, we see the words of the first and the last in verse 8. Isaiah 44, 6 says, I am he, I am the first and I am the last. Jesus begins this letter by refuting the idea that the city of Smyrna was the true first of anything. 
These words begin with the truth that what we do as human beings, what we achieve for ourselves is completely and utterly finite. It's going away, including those things that we perceive to be great, those things that we perceive to be powerful. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers and fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Right out of the gate, Jesus rebukes the hubris and the pride of the culture of privilege and entitlement found in many segments of this population of people. Just as he rebukes those from today who give glory and who give worship to things other than Christ, those things that are temporary, he is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. And after all of these supposed marvels fade away, he will stand victorious. An encouragement to these Christians right away. Next we read, I know your tribulation and your poverty. This is verse 9. Daryl Johnson, within his commentary, Discipleship on the Edge, says the following. The Greek word used here is thipsis, and it means pressure, or more exactly, crushing pressure. So Jesus doesn't mince words here when he says, I know you're crushing pressure. Paul mentioned last week, but I think it bears repeating. As we begin the book of Revelation, John sees seven lampstands representative of the seven churches, And in the middle of these, he sees one like the Son of Man. Chapter 1, verse 13. The crucified and risen Lord is in the midst of his churches, friends. He understands the issues. He understands the problems. This is not some vague use of language as in, I kind of know the thing you might be maybe dealing with. Jesus isn't speaking in generalities. He's saying, I know the very specifics of your situation because I am here with you in your midst. What's more than that? I bore the weight of the world's sin on the cross, so anything you come under, I have already been under. Scripture then continues, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 9. What is that? (laughs) What does that mean? Within the city of Smyrna at that time, there was a large Jewish population. And for the most part, this group, because of their religious beliefs, were exempt from any kind of emperor worship as well as military service. And we know from history how fickle governments can be in terms of revoking those privileges. So when the Christians began to claim the same rights as this community, some within this group became anxious. They feared that their rights would be trampled upon. They feared that this group of Jesus followers would ruin the understanding that they had with the Romans. And so this quickly turned into not-so-subtle hostility. Christians were attacked. They were shunned. They were left out. Their businesses were targeted. Their families were targeted. And this helps to explain the poverty mentioned in this text in the midst of a city that, because of trade, was making money hand over fist. This also explains the powerful words of the letter when it describes this group as a synagogue of Satan. Okay, now that we have a little bit of context, let's get into the message itself in verses 10 and 11. They say, Do not fear. 
what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's lots that we could unpack in these two verses, but as I prayed through our time together, I kept being led back to a few simple words. Do not fear. Be faithful. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Very simply that as those who follow Jesus, we can expect trials. That as we are charged with these trials, we are also charged with meeting them with faith and not fear. And that those who do this will receive the crown of life. They will not be hurt by the second death. Firstly, that there will be trials. For the church in Smyrna, many of these were listed in and throughout the passage, and we've made note of them. They include poverty and slander and imprisonment, which would all often be a precursor to execution, as well as death itself. And if we were to find ourselves to be amongst the people in Smyrna, I believe that we could add lots of different things to this list of burdens. But I suspect that the specifics here aren't as important as the truth that for the Christian in these last days, we should expect trials of all kinds, this as we go against the cultural stream more and more. It could have been really easy for the Christians in Smyrna. Go to the temple every so often. Declare your allegiance to Rome. Utter a few simple words regarding the emperor's divinity, whether you mean them or not. And then go home. Lead your life. Follow your God. No fuss, no mess, no follow-up. Sacrifice just this one thing. Concede just this one thing. Give in on just this one thing and walk away. But the fact is, for these Christians, this was not an option. Uttering words of false divinity wasn't an option. Bowing to the pressure of current culture wasn't an option. They made the decision that honoring God and God alone was more important than any of this. And they'd met with trouble because of this choice. And here, Jesus, in this passage, is bracing them for further hardship. Hold fast. Hold fast. Related to this, I want to make a quick comment or two on the idea of being tested. That which we find in verse 10. The book of Revelation is full of frank discussion on hardship. It's also a book that infers some pretty pointed questions, chief amongst them, who will you follow? Not only that, are you willing to be refined by times of tribulation? 
This passage, I believe, is frank in saying that trial and sacrifice reveal who are the true followers of Jesus, just as they reveal those whom would rather not give up their comforts. It's a hard message to hear, but it is the message of this verse. Two roads diverged from a winding wood. Two roads and only two. Will we be those who embrace tribulation, believing that God is sovereign, that he is above all, that he is over all, that he is in all, that he is through all, or will we fade away? Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher, once said, as if most of you didn't know who Charles Spurgeon was, right? Maybe some of you didn't. He said this, I've learned to kiss the waves that have slammed me into the rock of ages. That's pretty cool. I've learned to kiss the waves that have slammed me into the rock of ages. As followers of Jesus, we can and should expect trials. Secondly, we're asked to meet these trials with faith and not fear. Be faithful unto death we read in verse 10. This is a lot easier to read about. This is a lot easier to hear about. If I'm being truthful, it's a lot easier to preach or teach on than it is to live out. It's really easy for us to arrive at fear, isn't it? That which holds us captive, that which paralyzes us, that which keeps us stationary even when we recognize that the Lord is asking us to move forward. Friends, this fear is not of God because we know that perfect love drives out fear. 1 John 4.18 I would suggest though that if we're getting real, some of us in this room probably struggle with this very thing. And more than that, I would suggest that some of us struggle with the guilt that comes from making a commitment to follow Jesus and of still reverting to that prison of fear. I know this because I have struggled with this. I've struggled with meeting certain situations in my life with faith and not fear. And as I reflect on this, I think of a few simple truths that were spoken into my life. Firstly, that it's important for us to recognize when we are most susceptible to the attacks of the evil one. That as we draw near to Christ, the enemy, I believe, becomes anxious and often we can come under attack. The paradoxical beauty of this, though, is that as we draw near to Christ, we're given what we need to combat the schemes of the evil one. Secondly, when those attacks come, it's important for us to be in prayer. And more than that, it's important for us to know the promises of God in Scripture so that in those deepest, darkest moments, in the midst of what can feel like overwhelming tribulation, we can speak truth. We can speak out the name of Jesus. We can speak out the name that's above every name the name that's above every circumstance, we can speak out the truth that he has final authority. And thirdly, we simply cannot live as those who hide 
our fears from others. We weren't created for isolation, folks. If we are in Christ, then we are in community. And if we can't share here, then where can we share? This, the community of God, the church, is a byproduct of this relationship and of this relationship. And if one of these isn't working, then this doesn't work. It just doesn't. It's not about simply not being afraid. Because I think that probably the Christians in Smyrna were afraid at points. It's about stepping out anyway, in spite of those things that might hold us back. It's about attending SOAR in Montreal, even though we may be nervous about what we might encounter. It's about going to Morocco. It's about going to Turkey. It's about witnessing to our neighbor across the street, even though we feel like we might not have it together. Because that which we cling to, the truth that we know, transcends our human weakness and allows us to take that first step, not on our own strength, but on the power and by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. 2 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 is a verse that many of you probably know. This is the Lord saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul then responds, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. We don't gain an extra measure of faith by simply trying harder. Our faith is built as we come to Jesus. As we release control to Him. As we allow ourselves to be refined. That's where faith is found. That's where faith is cultivated. And this is where we find the strength to meet hardships. Finally, The scripture is clear that those who meet this tribulation with faith, those who put their trust in Jesus, who follow him in spite of the world around them, will receive the crown of life. Smyrna, during this time, was known for its various athletic competitions, and it was common for those who were victorious to receive, amongst other things, a laurel wreath, a victor's crown. And when you think about the Olympics, you might think of a crown made out of, I don't know, made out of some kind of plant life or foliage or whatever it is. That's the kind of crown that we're talking about here. It was a visual sign that whomever was wearing it had conquered. They had persevered. They had won. The Christians in Smyrna would have seen this crown of life reference as the victor's crown for those who would endure to the end, for those who would run the race to its completion, but they would have seen it as much more than a moral victory because this crown marked its recipients as those who had won the eternal prize. 
of life in the presence of our Heavenly Father forevermore. The scripture also says, they who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. Many of you have heard the saying, there's only two things for sure in life. James, what is it? Oh, James doesn't know. Not all of you have heard this then, I guess. Only two things for sure in life. Death and taxes. There we go. And more taxes than most in British Columbia. <laughs> Let me assure you, there's, there's much more to life than that. But the one thing in that statement that I do agree with is that except for the generation that's alive at the return of Christ, we are all going to die a physical death. This is the first death. Our bodies from the time we're born begin to deteriorate, don't they? Those aches and pains, the need for glasses or contacts, the gray hair, the constant battles with disease and illness, these are proof that we weren't meant to live in our current state for more than a very short period. And certainly in this scripture, Jesus isn't promising that our physical lives will be saved or even prolonged. On the contrary, if anything, he's saying that to follow him means the very real possibility that our earthly lives will be cut short. But what Jesus does promise is safety from the second death, the spiritual death, the death that has very real, eternal consequences. All right, I'm going to hit you with a Lord of the Rings reference. Here we go. Near the end, there's three people that are like, yes. And the rest of you are like, I don't care. <laughs> Four people that said yes, good. Uh, near the end of the third Lord of the Rings film, we find that the kingdom of light is under serious attack. And it looks from the outside as though the forces of darkness may indeed prevail. And in one particularly hopeless moment, Pippin, one of our good hobbit friends, says, I didn't think it would end this way. And Gandalf, the catalyst for good throughout the series, replies, end? No, no. The journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. And Pippin says, see what? See what? And Gandalf says, white shores, and beyond a far green country into a swift sunrise. And Pippin says, well, that isn't so bad. And Gandalf says, no. No, it isn't. Revelation 2, 8 to 11, reiterates the truth of the gospel message that says emphatically that physical death is not the end. That what we see around us is only the very beginning. The fact of the matter is that the gospel is truly countercultural. It's a message that points to one ultimate truth. It doesn't say what's true for me might not be true for you. 
It says that there is only one way to God, and that is in and through Jesus Christ. Through putting our trust and our faith in him for the forgiveness of sins, through following him, standing for him, living for him. It's a message that is foolishness to many. And because of this, like the church in Smyrna, it's a message that we who have made a decision to follow Jesus may suffer for. So to those who are in Christ tonight, hold fast. Prepare to stand, in some cases alone. Prepare for momentary tribulation, for a little bit of discomfort. Rest at the feet of Jesus and your faith will be renewed. And think not of earthly things, those things that wither and fade. Rather, set your minds on things above, on kingdom things, of eternal things. And for those of you who haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, know that this message doesn't offer a free pass through life. But what it does offer is something much, much greater. Life everlasting, forever in the presence of our Heavenly Father, where there is no suffering and no death, no pain. Come to Jesus tonight and find true everlasting.